and welcome to Ethics in Marketing podcast. My name is Mikhail Mizgin, and today I joined by Harriet Kingaby. This conversation was recorded before the recent events at Twitter, when unpredictable actions related to content moderation policies started to create a lot of anxiety for brands, and brand safety became a popular topic. We talk about the relationships between hate speech and disinformation and the advertising industry, how companies inadvertently fund problematic content on the internet, where brand safety fits into this picture, and more. Hi, Harriet. Welcome to the show. Hi, Mikhail. Lovely to meet you. Could you please introduce yourself and tell me what you do? Absolutely, yes. I am the co-chair of something called the Conscious Advertising Network. I also work at ethical ad agency Media Bounty as their insights director. Um, And I work a lot with things like climate change, misinformation, um, human rights and advertising. Okay, so could you please tell me more about Conscious Advertising Network? What exactly you do and what is the mission of that organization? Absolutely. So, The Conscious Advertising Network is a voluntary coalition of around 150 organizations. We're on a mission to break the link between advertising and harmful content. And of our 150 members, we've got everyone from, you know, kind of big advertising organizations, you know, kind of Havas. We have um, Group M as part of us. We have big brands like Nationwide. And we also have civil society organizations. So people like the UN. Um, We have um, anti-hate organizations like Tell Mama. And the reason that we do this is because advertising is inadvertently impacting on human rights in various different ways. And we build, we feel like these kind of coalitions that bring together unusual actors are the only ways that we're going to solve some of these problems. So you, you said harmful content. So what's considered harmful content? What kind of harmful content exists in? Absolutely. So I think harmful content means essentially any content that crosses a line into what can cause human harm. And the lines themselves are very, very difficult to judge. When we think about things like hate speech, or we think about things like dis or misinformation, for example, um, when we think about content that's that's harmful for children, there are a lot of judgments that have to be made. And, you know, I'm an advertiser. Um, I don't, I'm not an expert in, in human rights, although I know a bit more about it than I used to. Um, and so what we do is we look at areas where people, um, you know, people who are a lot cleverer than me have worked on things like, you know, kind of um, human rights and, you know, kind of like definitions of harm. And we defer to them. So all of our, we've created seven manifestos which look at ways which advertisers can, you know, make sure that they're not funding hate, that they're not, um, you know, kind of funding funding uh, disinformation and we defer to people like the UN who've um, you know kind of got things like uh, kind of hate speech definitions in order to to make that judgment around what's harmful and you know kind of what's what's um, borderline or safe content mm-hmm. so basically you outsource the knowledge that is related to judging what kind of information should be considered harmful to the experts in these matters right? Absolutely. Because as you know, as an advertiser, I wouldn't want to be making those judgment calls. Mm -hmm. We work a lot with people like the platforms and, you know, big agencies. None of us want to be arbiters of truth in places that we don't really understand. But there is huge wealth of um, knowledge and huge amounts of work that's been done by people like the UN or, you know, kind of particular particular civil society groups. And so what we do is we bring them around the table and we signpost to their work in our manifestos. So we the idea is hopefully it makes it easier for the advertising industry to understand, you know, kind of where's where are those harms happening? What does what does that kind of content look like? And to make better decisions about, you know, kind of where um, they, they place their ads. So advertising is rather a broad term. And to clarify it for our listeners, what kind of advertising we're talking about today? Great. So actually, our manifestos cover, um, you know, kind of all advertising. I think there's two specific places that we kind of concentrate. And the first of that is online. So digital advertising and particularly dig- digital advertising bought through kind of programmatic methods um, you know, kind of has some inherent risks with it. Um, you know, we don't necessarily know where our advertising is going a lot of the time um, for good reason, because these kind of 
buys are being made at, at, at scale. Um, but there are things that advertisers can do to make sure that they're not inadvertently funding hate or misinformation, etc. We also look at um, kind of television ads because the placement of television ads is much more intentional, uh, particularly on, on kind of linear TV. And so, you know, what we do is we help our um, members to really try and understand, well, you know, actually, my my advertising isn't just a, uh, you know, kind of isn't just a placement, it's also an investment in a media ecosystem. And so what they choose to fund or what they choose to defund has really big implications for the health of that media ecosystem. So that choice of funding or defunding, how should it happen inside a company? Like, if I am an advertiser, or I represent a company, I work for a company, I want to launch campaigns. And let's use programmatic ads as an example. So I'm a media buyer, I want to buy certain ads. And when I buy some display ads, I might not knowingly fund media that promotes hate speech, right? Or, you know, publish misinformation on climate change. I might support them with ad revenue. But um, what could I do about that? Uh, Because those platforms where I buy you know, they don't really provide a lot of tools to help me navigate those issues. So there are basically our manifestos have been put together with experts from the fields of human rights, advertising experts and, um, you know, kind of anyone doing interesting work in this area that we think is really is really, you know, kind of worth getting their insight, essentially. So what we talk about are principles, um, because every organisation is going to be different. Every organisation is going to use different platforms, different techniques, etc. But what we look at is things like, you know, kind of actually being much more intentional within the way that you buy your media. And I'm not an, a media expert, but we do talk about things like um, having creating um, kind of inclusion lists and kind of lists of places that you really want to be. And this might be, you know, kind of intentionally supporting high quality journalism. And um, we saw, uh, you know, we saw, saw that in COVID. We saw how important it was that actually we, you know, we did actually make sure that our advertising revenue reached um, credible sources of information um, because, you know, in times of in times of crisis, for example, it's so, so important that we have access to that. Um, so we th- have things like inclusion lists and places that you intentionally want to be. And this can also include content that serves particular communities. Um, You know, for example, the LGBTQ plus communities, certain religious communities often actually are victims of of block lists because, you know, kind of risk averse advertising people put these particular words on block lists. Um, I think a study by Vice found that things like um, kind of Muslim and gay were routinely found on block lists when in fact that just blocks, you know, entire swathes of community media. So with those inclusion lists, we ask people to be intentional about what they want to fund. On the flip side of things, we ask people to be very, very, you know, kind of careful about what they, you know, what they don't want to fund because it's in that long tail of the internet that we find a lot of the a lot of the content that I've, you know, scam content, um, you know, kind of misinformative content and things like that. And then things in between, if you're doing a kind of programmatic buy, that's where, you know, that's that's where your brand safety technology you know kind of can can be used. Obviously with safeguards. One thing that we're really trying to do is actually to make sure that this all the all this decision making um, or all this kind of this 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 need for more scrutiny and more transparency is actually embedded at the procurement stage. So we say that actually, you know, our our ask of members is that all RFPs that go out have the CAM principles in them because we believe that actually you've got to change this stuff. Uh, you've got to make this the default in the way that that advertising is kind of bought, sold, and created. And we do think that you know, particularly vendors um, and partners do need to be more more transparent about what's happening and do need to be more kind of human rights conscious and what they have in, in what's happening too so that's that's one thing we look at we also look at um and i should have said this up front but we also look at you know digital advertising on, on social media platforms um obviously there's some serious uh, ethical and enforcement issues in, with with many you know kind of many of those so you know we also encourage members to have conversations with those platforms of whom they're a customer um, and try you know think about how their influence can actually affect policy development and affect what those um, platforms see as, as priorities so you mentioned whitelist as a tool that could be used to try to consciously put advertising money or let's say support certain places on the internet with ad money. So how do you actually decide what platforms you want to whitelist? And one thought that comes to mind is that 
you know, whitelist is by definition where you create a list of platforms that you trust. And well, it includes only platforms that you know. And you, again, you can exclude a lot of platforms on the internet because you just don't know about them and, you know, they would lose any kind of income they have from ad revenue. And, you know, because we all know big publications, I don't know, like uh, big newspapers, news websites, but those smaller media or maybe blogs that they might have really good content, but nobody knows about them in terms of like, they, nobody will think about them while compiling such whitelist. So do you think there is a danger of kind of excluding those smaller media? Yeah, so I think what we always recommend is, first off, we use the, the term inclusion list. And, you know, like we do, essentially what we, um, you know, what we what we suggest is, is working with experts. So, for example, um, you know, I wouldn't, would not expect every, uh, you know, every media planner to, to know uh, you know, kind of, I don't know, the, you know, small, everything about small niche blogs, um, or, you know, kind of everything necessarily about communities that they're not a part of, but it is really important that we do make decisions that actively fund great content, great creators, um, particularly in niche areas, not because, uh, you know, not not just because we um, diversity and plurality of media is so so important, but also because you know if you're thinking about it from a commercial sense, if you're excluding communities from your media buy, then actually you know you're really not reaching potential customers. So what we you know we we really really recommend that organisations work with experts, do their homework. You know, organisations, for example, you know such as Brand Advance, who specialise in LGBTQ plus. Um, media and you know kind of media from communities that you know communities that many many advertisers were inadvertently excluding and that way you can really make sure that you're you're being intentional about where your advertising is going so we have this concept which we call conscious media investment and you know as we said before it's it's you know the health of any media ecosystem relies on uh, diverse creators and and you know kind of good creating quality content and being able to monetize themselves through you know through advertising that's the the dominant web model that we have so absolutely i think it's so so important that you don't just go okay well these you know kind of top five publications that i know that's where we're going to spend our spend spend our money because you will you will cut out um you know different communities and and great creators from your buy but luckily there are increasing numbers of of tools and partners out there um i think to help us make sure that you know that, that this is uh, you know kind of this this doesn't happen more about that flip side of the same problem that sometimes good publications don't get ad revenue because they are excluded from their network based on their keywords such yes. as muslim or gay do you think that this can be avoided by creating those inclusion lists so that you would actually stop using keywords but you would rather look at the media companies that you want to use where you want to actively choose to advertise rather than keywords because i know that keywords are one of the most common tools that media buyers use to actually avoid showing their ads in certain context that's a very common tool is there anything else or is it just kind of like switching this tool, the keywords, to using uh, publication names, media company names? So I think there's, I mean, keywords are really, they can be really blunt tools. And we, you know, we do know that. We do know that, you know, for example, you know, if you have, and I think the, the issue is also that block lists aren't updated often enough. So what will happen is there will be a news event and people will add words to, to block lists and then long after that news event has passed, they will remain on the block list. And unfortunately, that has, you know, that has a serious impact on, you know, kind of certain communities. We know that neutral words, and I, and I think Brand Advance and, and Vice did a study. In fact, Vice did a study, I think, in 2018, which found that 73% of LGBTQ plus content that was safe, um, you know, absolutely safe for advertising, was unable to monetize through advertising. And I believe that Brand Advance ran that same survey again last year and found that there was virtually no change and so 
I think it is incredibly important that we don't just rely on block lists in order to kind of keep us safe. And that also that if we do rely on block lists, that those block lists are regularly removed. Um, you know, we found similar phenomenon within within climate change. So obviously, you know, massive, massive issue for a generation. And uh, we ran a media bounty and check ran a survey last year and found that 70 percent of safe climate content was unable to be monetized through advertising. And so what this does is it completely skews the debate. If, you know, millions of pounds are heading, you know, kind of going going into and being mined by creators of disinformation around particular topics, as we know it is with climate change, and the factual stuff, the quality stuff, the, you know, the, the stuff that's telling us what's really going on is unable to monetize, it produces these weird incentives that mean that, um, you know, actually we'll hear loads, we'll hear more disinformation, there's incentives for creating disinformation, but there's not enough incentive to report on this stuff factually and correctly. So we see this phenomenon in lots and lots of topics. And I would suggest that, you know, block lists are only one tiny part of what is available in order to kind of help media buyers, um, you know, to, to make good judgments about, you know, kind of where their media, their media um, spend goes. And I would highly recommend our manifestos have got really, really kind of good advice um, by people who were much cleverer than me and certainly much more experienced in the media space on how to make those buyers, you know, kind of much more um, in line with your brand values, much more kind of not just brand safe, but also kind of, you know, kind of suitable um, and to make that conscious investment in the kind of media ecosystems we want to see. In one of your presentations, you showed ads by companies that care about climate. Lush was one of them. Inadvertently funding climate misinformation. And these were ads on YouTube so-called pre-roll ads before videos uh, with the climate misinformation. And so that's a very different situation for me because YouTube is a platform where you can find all sorts of information. So whose fault is it? Is this a YouTube problem or is it an advertiser problem? Great question. So I think there's a chain of responsibility here. Um, You know, to start off with, um, you know, YouTube and Google did announce a kind of uh, climate uh, climate misinformation uh, monetization policy last year at COP. Um, so we partnered with them, and that means that um, now anything, any content on you know either on the open web or on YouTube that um, goes against the scientific consensus around climate change can't use advertising tools either to monetize itself and to to gain money or to kind of amplify what it's saying. And of course, any policy is only ever as good as its enforcement. So, you know, we do what we what we need to see from platforms is absolutely, you know, we need policies around really important issues like climate misinformation. But then we also need to see those policies enforced. And that is, you know, that is absolutely, you know, kind of on the platforms to do that. Um, We work with civil society members who you know, do do a lot of checking to check whether the, the platforms do enforce their policies properly. And it, obviously, it ranges completely differently across, uh, you know, different levels of success across different topics and different languages. Unfortunately, with things like, you know, the great replacement theory, which we're seeing a lot in mainstream media in the US and in, 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 in France, for example, platforms aren't necessarily, um, they don't necessarily have the right policies around content like that. So you are seeing it monetized. And that is a huge brand risk. You know, the Great Replacement Theory is an awful, um, you know, kind of racist conspiracy theory, and no brand should be next to that content. Um, and so we need better content development. And this, you know, I think I believe on on, on Facebook, for example, um, Global Witness ran a, ran a survey and found that this stuff wasn't even getting fact checked. So we just have to be extremely careful. And there's very little advertisers can do to, um, you know, to, to control that, particularly on, on uh, you know, platforms with, with news feeds, for example. So there it's a very, very difficult issue. And that, that is firmly in the platform's, um, you know, kind of level of responsibility. I think where tools are available, it is obviously very, very difficult for brands when they appear next to this kind of stuff. It's their logo that's facing the world. It's their, you know, it's their association with their brand. Um, that's on this content and so you know th- and it's their money that's paying for it so that's why we kind of talk to our brand members about putting the you know the the principles of the manifestos and rfps because 
you know, ultimately that media buying agency is making decisions on behalf of the brand. So the brand should be putting the responsibility on them. And then that media buying agency needs to be talking to its vendors and its partners about their policies and, you know, kind of how they can they can bring them in line. So I do think there is, you know, there is it slightly depends where the advertising is, but we can all make better choices and we can all, um, you know, we can we can all kind of do little things, which mean that this stuff is less likely to appear um, you know, in our in, in in our media buys. Yeah, I'm a bit skeptical here. This relationships between content and advertising industry, because I I think that what we're learning is that there's uh, so much of content is produced that it's proven time and again that platforms simply cannot check all the content that is produced, and we are running into an issue where. The platforms, they kind of reached a stalemate because they don't know what to do. And this content is being produced. And as you said, uh, what is the purpose of regulations if they cannot be enforced? Uh, So I don't see how this can be enforced because there is this problem of so much content is created and we're already at the point where content can be produced with the help of AI. So it could be produced faster and faster and and more of the content can be produced, uh, including all sorts of content. It could be hate, misinformation, anything, right? And in order to really assess a piece of content, you really have to watch. You have to use an expert opinion. You have to make a judgment. And that's a lot of resources. Well, where do you get so many experts to make a judgment? Who is going to fund all of that? And so I think that the question is, it's very uncomfortable, but the question is, is the existing system of uh, endless, unmoderated content uh, and an ability to advertise by default is sustainable? I know, so that's a big philosophical question, and I agree. I agree. I think we've got, you know you just have to look at what's happening to see that we are in you know we are seeing huge issues resulting and like real world issues resulting from content that is unmoderated on on platforms so you know facebook has been explicitly implicated in genocide in myanmar a report for you know reports from uh, you know kind of global witness over the last 6 months um show what's happening in ethiopia and other markets where even advertising tools are not, you know, advertising content isn't being checked. So, you know, kind of content is being allowed to to be monetized with hate speech in it, for example. And in countries where there is, you know, dangerous uh, or, you know, kind of unstable situations, this this stuff can lead to, to really, really, really awful human consequences. And, you know, but part of that, I have to say, is that, you know, the platforms aren't necessarily investing as they need to in, um, kind of moderators in in kind of new languages and in new markets that have market specific knowledge in in ways that they they should be um so there are some things that those platforms can do to improve um their operations in 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 new markets and and new languages there is a huge focus in content moderation in the english language which is you know all right for the uk and america but it's it's got massive consequences for markets like india where you've got 200 plus languages being spoken across the country so you know it's i think there is there's a huge risk there and i think also as you said there's so much content going up um you know there are you know obviously artificial intelligence does help them to tag and look at specific types of content and they do have some things in place but it's it's not enough and you know for example when atrocities happen and videos are uploaded that shouldn't be there, the crisis response levels that they have to do in order to take down, you know, make sure that content isn't appearing again and again and again is is vast. So I I do think there is a huge problem. I do think this is something that we need to be um, using our influencers, the customers of these platforms to to do something about um, is is, is enormous. And we do have a responsibility because we're essentially bankrolling this. And so it's very, very important that we have these conversations with platforms and that we do um, you know, kind of use our influence to try and get them to do better, frankly. You know, just the disinformation economy alone is worth $2.6 billion per year, according to, to kind of NewsGuard and Comscore. That's an awful lot of money that is flowing to um, creators of extremism and disinformation. And 
collectively we've got a responsibility to sort that out it's you know the platforms themselves but also us as their biggest customers to to put pressure to make that happen yeah so uh, a couple of years ago there was a big wave of protest against facebook where a number of brands stopped advertising on facebook for a month uh, but then the month uh, ended and everything went back uh, to quote-unquote normal and there were some really big names that stopped advertising on Facebook. But uh, the interesting thing is that I think they somehow also realized that they cannot afford not to advertise on Facebook. And there is like an elephant in the room where it's the system that prevents everybody to take an action because the businesses depend on the model and the model really harms that society harms people. I think that brands have very limited power when it comes to influencing Facebook or other big platform. Now, if a coalition, if a very big coalition of brands comes together and they say, we're not going to advertise on Facebook until something gets sold, not for a month, right? Because it's just one month. But can they really do this? Because behind those brands, we know there are the boards, there are shareholders, and it's the whole system that requires the economy to grow and grow and grow and grow. It keeps everything moving, right? And so it seems like some of these actions, they attempt to resolve it. But at the same time, everybody understands that they can't really solve this. And so sometimes they kind of demonstrate that they maybe sympathize with the problem, but they can't really change it. At least that's how I feel about it. And to some extent, I agree with you. I think it's really, really hard. These platforms, the platforms have got to want to change. And, you know, for example, you know, a, if a month, a month boycott, I agree, hasn't led to the long lasting change that those brands really wanted it to. What we really need to do is have long-term engagement with with the platforms. And I think some of them are, you know, are receptive and are changing. So, for example, um, you know, kind of we created an open letter around, um, you know, after the the racist abuse that um, many of our footballers suffered after the Euros last, um, last year. And there were, you know, kind of Snapchat did change their policies. Sorry, Snap did change their policies as a result of this open letter. And, as, and they did listen to advertisers about particular things. Um, you know, we saw last year we partnered with Google to on that climate misinformation policy. So we've seen that that long term kind of sustained engagement from brands and civil society can really have an impact and can change things. But it's a slow process. This isn't happening overnight. It's not happening at all platforms. And I think that presents a real dilemma to advertisers because you're kind of locked into this, you know, as you said, locked into this process. And essentially um you know kind of the, that you either you either have a choice you have to hold your nose and do it or you you don't and you have to find other methods luckily i do think there are other you know advertising formats out there that are really interesting and i know that for example Nand- uh, nandini jammy from check my ads um said you know t- i tell you what don't just boycott you know i just want to make clear we don't call for boycotts in in our organization but her thing was don't just boycott it was you know actually spend 10% of your advertising revenue elsewhere and experiment to see if you can get, um, you know, kind of the engagement on other platforms, on other on other channels. Now, as I said, I'm not a media expert, so I don't know, you know, I don't know if it's really feasible to, to you know, to, to switch, things, switch things completely away. But what I do know is that advertisers are these platforms customers. We spend millions, if not billions of dollars with them every year, and that's got to count for something. And I think that's why, um, you know, kind of models like CAN, where we have experts, we, you know, our civil society groups are experts in the issues with which they talk about. And we have our advertisers who are our consumers and who are experts in, you know, in in these tough choices and in the technology and in the kind of the realities of of what it means um, to, to, to kind of work with these platforms on a business level. And if we start to create coalitions like this and we start to make you know, kind of asks, I think we will get somewhere. And, you know, as I said, these kind of policy changes are are are, hap- are happening. 
obviously, you know, we can talk about enforcement and we can talk about whether they're not happening happening fast enough. But I don't think I find that there's reason to be hopeful. No, I agree. We should stay hopeful and do everything we can to make progress. Have you heard about PayPal controversy? No, I haven't. All right. So um, it's not really advertising, but I think that somehow this PayPal controversy is relevant to the conversation. It's just a few, it happened a few days ago. Uh, PayPal published a new policy where they said they're going to fine their customers for misinformation, if they find their customers oh. spreading misinformation. And almost immediately retracted that policy after huge uh, backlash on social media, uh, saying right. that it was published by mistake, even though we know it's PayPal and there are like probably hundreds of lawyers read through it before publication. But this raises the question of who decides what is misinformation, because that is exactly what PayPal is being accused of, like backlash and the retraction of that policy was a reaction to outcry that, no, that company cannot decide arbitrarily whether something is misinformation or not and hold my money hostage against me uh, for like think, oh, I'm not going to publish that because what if PayPal thinks that this is some kind of misinformation? I don't know how they're going to interpret it. At the same time, it feels like maybe there is some sort of, from the PayPal side, maybe there is some sort of good intent here. Like it's an attempt to react to the problem Maybe it's a bit lame, but uh, anyway, I think that's a, a, a very interesting case. So what do you think about that? Oh, that's so interesting. So yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. Like who decides what's what's misinformation, what's fake news and what's not? And that gets you into some sticky ground really quickly if you think about it. So, you know, if I don't like, if I don't like what you're saying, does that make it misinformation? If I, you know, you know, we get, we get, who you know kind of who is the arbiter of truth as as you know kind of lots of the, the platforms have said to us that they don't want to be and, and rightfully they shouldn't so i would suggest that um, and what the the approach that we take is to think very precisely about language and definitions here so when we think about misinformation disinformation and i think it's worth noting that also um there is an important distinction here which is that misinformation is the overall phenomenon you know kind of news that isn't true being shared, um, you know, kind of all created by, by by people in general. And misinformation, there's no intent there. Like, I, I, I've probably shared misinformation, you probably have too, by accident, because, you know, there's no intent to deceive in that whole process, whereas disinformation is expressly created with the intent to deceive. So, you know, if I know, if I, you know, and if I know, for example, that, uh, you know, kind of, there is a scientific consensus around climate change and I'm putting out information that says, um, oh, no, 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 global warming isn't happening, then, you know, there is an in, there is an intent there. And so that's one important definition de- distinction when you're thinking about, I think, punishment for people who might be might be involved in this conversation. Um, because I would suggest that they would be, uh, you know, not sure punishment's the right word, actually. But, you know, if you're thinking about trying to control this, that's that's one that's one lens to put on it. The other lens is that, you know, we need to have robust discussions about things. Human thinking has changed over the, over the years. Like what is, you know, there are interesting lines around what constitutes hate speech that we should be, and, and therefore harm, because the consequences of things like hate speech can be huge. Dehumanizing language can have serious consequences. Incitement to violence can have very, very serious consequences. So, you know, I think when we're thinking about what is acceptable, uh, you know, kind of obviously there's red lines there. But I mean, the the line that we usually take is around scientific consensus. So if there is a scientific consensus, and let's let's be clear, there are very few things about which there is a scientific consensus. Most scientists, um, you know, science is about exploration. And a lot of scientists do not agree with each other about a lot of different things. Where there is scientific consensus, however, and climate, I'm using climate change as the example, because I'm you know, kind of climate expert, you know, that's where we can say there is a line. And I would suggest it's the same thing around medical mis-, mis and disinformation. We know that if you take horse worming tablets, it is not going to cure your COVID. But, you know, and therefore that is 
also uh, kind of myths or disinformation because we know it you know the medical community can robustly tell us that it doesn't work so where you do have um kind of these concepts which are backed up by science i think you can start to take a different approach so that's why you know for example google's misinformation policy around climate change focuses on scientific consensus so you know and that's client scientific consensus tells us that that climate change is happening and it's caused by us and so if you are knowingly creating content, and many are, that, that contradicts that scientific consensus, you have a right to say it, but you do not have a right to use advertising tools to amplify that speech. And because it be, you know, because essentially it's 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 harmful. And you can say the same around medical mis, mis and disinformation. We're also kind of campaigning for a definition of climate misinformation that includes two other things. The first of which is misrepresentation of science. There is a real trend within science communications to cherry pick, for example, and say, tell you what, uh, you know, the top of Kilimanjaro has still got snow on it um, this year. So climate change isn't happening. And we know that climate change is a much bigger phenomenon than that. So, you know, kind of cherry picking those examples to back up your data, to back up your theory, for example, that is also disinformation. And the final one is this idea of false solutions, because Climate change is quite simple, like it's, it's not, but it is like, you know, the more carbon dioxide that's in the atmosphere, the warmer our planet is going to get. And therefore, the plan to sort it out, although it is extremely complicated, can literally be boiled down to let's, you know, kind of like either stop carbon dioxide being released into the atmosphere or let's take it out. So the third one is false solutions. So anything that actually doesn't, you know, kind of support, um, you know, kind of a reduction of climate carbon dioxide in our atmosphere is a false is a false solution. And we think that should be classified as disinformation as well, because there's plenty of organisations out there, for example, big oil and gas companies saying algae, algae based fuel is our future in advertising, when in fact, um, you know, it's a tiny R&D programme that won't kind of couldn't possibly play a role in, a, in, you know, kind of fixing climate change for the for another 25 years. So we do think that where there's scientific consensus, and where it can be applied, you know, kind of really robustly, that's where you can start to draw lines, unfortunately, or fortunately, you know, there are many other subjects with which we're going to have to have rich debates. And that is the very nature of, I think, you know, kind of humanity and what needs to happen. But where we can draw where we can draw strong lines, I think, you know, we do have a misinformation problem, we do have an extremism problem, we do have a hate problem, and they are all interlinked. So I think great, the PayPal were trying to do something, it sounds very, it sounds really misguided. But you know, I think, as I said, we do have a collective responsibility to tackle some of these problems. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. But I'm going to ask some devil advocate questions. Sure. Um, <laughs> there is definitely consensus on climate change, but the argument can be made that there is no agreement among top politicians on the issue. There are people who run for president in some countries and sometimes they win. So these are some of the top politicians in the world and they're in denial. So this could be used as a strong argument. Like if a president of that country does not support the consensus of scientists on that issue, why should we use this as a cornerstone around which we build our policy of content moderation or how we allow certain content creators uh, monetize their content yeah so i think you know everyone is free to say what they you know kind of what they like within the laws of the land that is the nature of you know kind of the uh, and i'm not a again i'm not a human rights specialist but you know within our within our declara un declaration of human rights um on which our you know kind of legal system is 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 based you know there are 30 different human rights and they include freedom of expression you know in the states that is freedom of speech but they also include things like um you know kind of freedom from harm and i think it's very very tempting when we're looking at some of these debates to you know to focus in on on very particular areas but we have 30 30 you know, kind of human rights and the right to um, a safe environment was also added added quite recently so we have to take these things on balance it is reckless but obviously absolutely fine for a politician to take an anti-climate stance that's you know the nature of disagreement is not up for is not up for debate here what what i think i am talking about though is the ability to monetize so it is i think you know i think we sometimes conflate you know kind of we sometimes conflate um, our rights and our privileges. And I would suggest that advertising revenue is a privilege and not a right. So, and the use of advertising tools the same. So I can create 
content which could potentially cause harm to a particular community, for example. Now, that content is, you know, being able to use advertising tools on that content, either to earn money or to project it, you know, to amplify it, increases the risk of harm to that community. So we have to balance that. And I'm not talking about content moderation. That's an area for people that are much cleverer than me. I'm talking about monetized content here. And that is an area that I do think that we can apply rules to because it is a privilege and not a right. And I think where we can demonstrate that content causes harm or could cause harm, you know, then the use of advertising tools shouldn't be shouldn't be used so, you know, it is, as I said to you, it's fine for the for politicians to run on these on these platforms. And if people believe them, that's up to them. But there is no automatic right to using advertising tools. And I think that's what we're talking about here. And what about more tricky topics where the society is divided and there is certain legislation supporting both points of view? And as an example of this could be abortions in the US, mm-hmm. where uh, you're, you're probably familiar with the situation. So what do you think about this? <laughs> so, I mean, I think this is a, a, you know, kind of an interesting philosophical question. You probably want to get someone who's, um, who's a bit more kind of up on human rights than me. I mean, my professional opinion is that, you know, we have a de- UN Declaration of Human Rights for a really good reason. Um, you know, that was that you know, is embedded in our in, in our legislation. Um, it is embedded in the legislation of many other countries. And it really sets out... Um, you know, it is essentially the code of ethics that sets out how, um, you know, we believe that human beings should be able to live their lives. And therefore, I am very much in favour of, you know, of us being able to, you know, kind of have, you know, kind of have these rights and live by these rights. Countries such as the States, you know, if you look at, we did an analysis of the debate around the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And I will be frank with you, what we found was really shocking. We found huge amounts of medical disinformation in that um, in that in the coverage of that topic. We found hype, hyperbolic language. We found abject, uh, you know, kind of lies about the, the abortion process, about uh, you know, kind of what happens, what the implications are, that kind of stuff. We found um, dehumanizing language against um, people who seek abortions and those who give them. Now. If you are debating the human rights of 50% of the population, I would severely hope that you could do that and people could make decisions on that that are based on fact and are based on the best quality of information out there. Unfortunately, what we found was that there was there was a just huge levels of really bad quality information out there within this debate and being published. And that bad quality information was monetized. There was advertising all over it. And... I would argue that, that the advertisers involved, you know, the ad tech companies serving that ads and the advertisers and media, media agencies who are, you know, probably inadvertently, frankly, funding a lot of this should not be there. They should, you know, I think um, I think there is a serious issue around medical disinformation enforcement of policies there. There is a serious, um, you know, kind of issue around, you know, it doesn't matter what side of the political spectrum you sit on. Hate and disinformation transcends that. We can have hate and disinformation from both sides. And frankly, you know, it should not be it should not be present in debates where, you know, the human rights of so many people are at risk. So that's where I think it's so, so important as advertisers that we take not only these kind of commercial decisions of do we want to be against this content? Is it harmful to our brand? But we also think about the the consequences of that kind of content being incentivized essentially by what we do. And I think the abortion um, debate in the States is a good example of that. You said that companies and marketers should not make a judgment whether certain content is misinformation or not. It should be uh, an expert decision. And I think that big, big companies can afford hire an ethical consultant or something. However, uh, all companies of all sizes have access to these advertising tools. A small company, they can't afford ethical consultants to review everything they do. In this case, marketers are left with uh, in a situation where they need to make a certain decision. They don't have the resources to seek uh, a paid opinion of an expert. So what what should they do? Like, should they trust their gut feeling on certain issue? Should they brainstorm a certain topic within the company? Should they employ their company values 
and try to decide, like, uh, make them, guide them through the process. So how should they act? Absolutely. So a lot of our manifestos are based around this idea of questions. Rather than saying, you know, go and buy this big expensive solution to, to fix this problem, there it's we look at principles and we look at questions because we think it's really equally important that small marketers um, you know, can can implement this kind of you know, these kind of ethical principles as it is big marketers. Obviously, you know, if you're Procter and Gamble and you make a purchasing decision, it's it's enormous. And you know, if you're if you're a kind of you know a small business in in Bristol, for example, it's it's a smaller impact, but it's just as important. And so we ask organisations to kind of ask themselves some questions: Have you thought about this? Have you engaged um, you know particular communities, for example? Have you you know kind of like have you made sure that you're checking X, Y, and Z? Um, and I think this is useful for just as useful for small organisations as it is big ones. So if you are if you are in a small organisation, I do think that yes, particularly, you know, we talked about the importance of diversity of media earlier on. Um, you know, if you are a small company, if you are a small company, and you are all from a particular community, I think it is important that you kind of, you, you do kind of think about you know the diversity of 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 your um of your teams and you do seek advice from outside of you know the communities that you might be in because your advertising revenue is is going to be just as helpful in making sure that there is a diverse media ecosystem out there i think that where possible always like you know kind of seek out expert uh you know kind of seek out expert opinion where there is you know where there for example is medical uh you know kind of medical opinion out there that's that's an important decision when you're thinking about you know kind of oh hang on a second am i am i funding covid disinformation but let's be honest we're marketers we're not we're not going to have to we're not going to end up being experts in all of these topics so what i would say is um you know is to work on those inclusion lists um and to you know and to think about you know yeah i think think actively about you know kind of what way where you want to be use that lens of your brand values because it has been developed with these kind of decisions in mind ethical decisions should be made through the lens of your brand values you know kind of think about where you really you really want to show up in the same way that you would when developing messaging you know kind of we want to talk about ourselves like this and we want to be seen here and we want to be associated with this are the kind of decisions that we we do make when we're, we're developing brands and i think ultimately uh you know we'll all none of us will get it right none of us have got the answer to all of this you know we've just discussed how complex and uh you know kind of crucial it is but you know just by embedding that way of thinking and using the 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 tools that are available to you you will start you know you will start that that kind of change which will make these decisions easier what is more prevalent in your experience companies make changes because they want to do the right thing or because of the social pressure and potential damage to the brand i or think <laughs> I think there's a combination of uh, of both of them. Um, you know, we saw in 2017 when there was that Times investigation that found advertising next to terrorist content, for example, we found, you know, kind of quite quickly organisations were, you know, looking to mitigate their risk. And we had the brand safety conversation. And now we're having much more interesting and nuanced conversations about things like brand suitability you know kind of again this is this thing about where does how does the brand want to show up what does it want to fund and you know we have a we have a huge diverse mixture of members um we have members who've taken this as a leadership position we have organizations and agencies which have developed products of you know that allow their you know allow their 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 customers or their marketing teams to lead in this space so what we're seeing is there's been a big i think change in culture from avoiding risk into, you know, kind of leading and being, you know, kind of wanting to really, really market in an ethical way. And I think that's incredible. Obviously, every organisation is going to be different. You know, I think sure some organisations are just like, I just can't have another Twitter conversation where a customer's found me in somewhere I shouldn't be. And, you know, the reputational damage associated with that obviously is, 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 is huge. But equally, you know, I think a lot of organisations in the same way that, you know, we've seen a resurgence in, Uh, you know, kind of sustainability marketing and, uh, you know, kind of purpose marketing. A lot of organizations are looking at actually how do I show up in the world better and how do I, you know, kind of, I, su I suppose, kind of ensure that I'm building my, you know, building my brand genuinely when I'm placing my advertising. I also think, for example, that, you know, we have a, there is a wider conversation about trust. You know, we've been talking about trust as the advertising industry for such a long time. And trust isn't just about not bombarding people with ads. Trust is about, um, you know, building trust with 
with our customers also means, you know, kind of making sure that we're, uh, you know, kind of in the places that our customers expect. And I think there's been a big, I think, kind of consumer awakening around what advertising really, really means um, and its relationship to our media. So, you know, personally, I've, I've seen a big step change over the last five years, and I'm really happy to see that. Yeah, I think brand safety could be a more realistic motivator for many companies, especially with a complex internal structure uh, where you need to persuade many stakeholders on making a change. Do you think, uh, do you have any advice to people who care and who want to make change in their companies? Maybe certain examples of uh, reputational damage to brands that happened that they can use to advance the idea and take more proactive steps in changing their behavior. Yeah, absolutely. So we, the organizations that we've seen that have done amazingly well have been where people have formed cross kind of cross team working groups because fixing these issues isn't just going to take, often doesn't just take the marketing team. So, you know, we've had organizations that have got their legal teams involved, that have got their sustainability teams involved, that have actually got their leadership involved in this kind of transformation process. So as part of CAN, we ask everyone to audit their, you know, audit their advertising, audit the way it's created, created, or the way it's kind of bought and sold, and come up with an action plan. And, you know, those organizations that have done super well, as I said, have always come back with, you know, actually, we've We've gone around the organization. We've created a kind of team of, you know, kind of champions who are really bought into this and who really kind of are pushing it within their within their different department. And, you know, just to give an example of why it's so, so important to think about this. Um, one of our organizers, one of our members, Virgin Media O2, uh, they joined off the back of, you know, kind of all the COVID misinformation, which was which was which was running rife. And that was simply because they're a telecoms organization that when there was the conspiracy theory that COVID and 5G were linked they had uh, members members of the public threatening their their installers and damaging their their, their you know their, their infrastructure and so you know that was an ex- incredibly expensive business problem for them that was driven by disinformation and misinformation so it made sense for them um, to sign up to anything that you know kind of really looked at that problem and as i said because advertising is a huge funder of disinformation you know advertising is, is the place to start so many of our members have stories like that where they've had business issues which have been caused by uh, you know kind of misinformation disinformation hate speech etc and so it makes sense for them you know to to look at their advertising spend and ultimately you know nobody wants to be the brand that appears next to that terrorist video that you know, that's getting circulated or the picture, you know, or the, you know, that really, really unsavory content. And all of this stuff is not just enabling you to mitigate that risk, but it's also meaning that, you know, you, it's giving you something to talk about. It's giving you something where you can say, actually, you know, kind of we're leading. And, you know, I used to work in sustainability, you know, kind of so many brands, you know, kind of drive real value for themselves, um, you know, kind of by be, um, you know, kind of taking those positions. Okay, where can my listeners find you on the web? <laughs> Great. So I would highly recommend that you check out consciousadnet.org. Uh, we All of our uh, manifestos are open source and free to download and we are free to join if uh, you know if you're a marketer and you and you know you think your organization could could benefit from from being part of us. So yeah, join it. Find it. Find us there. You can also find our blog um, where we post important stuff, and you can sign up for our newsletter where we do things like um, briefings on issues we think marketers should know about. And for now, I'll thank Harriet Kingaby for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Harriet. Thank you so much, Michael. And I want to thank the audience for choosing to listen to conversations about ethics in marketing and making our profession better. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. That's it for now. And until next time. Bye.